Well, let's hear the Word of God this morning from Hebrews chapter 10. That's on page 1007 if you're using the Bible in the rack in front of you. Hebrews chapter 10, and we're reading at verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near." Father, we pray for the help of Your Holy Spirit as we mine the words of Christ, that our minds would be informed, our hearts thrilled, our wills bent to Your will, to Your praise and glory. Amen. Well, we've been working our way steadily through the letter to the Hebrews. It's one of the larger passages in the New Testament. And uh, the first section of it, really, right up until chapter 10, verse 18 and 19, the first section has been heavily doctrinal. In other words, it's just been packed full of of teaching. And uh, every word, every word, it seems, is loaded and needs to be parsed in order to grasp the full details of it. But here we come in chapter 10, verse 19, to a transitional section. We're moving from that steady diet of solid doctrine. There will be doctrine to come, but but the steady diet of doctrine has come to an end, and the author is now turning to us. You can see that. He's now addressing us, the the brothers. The implication of that is brothers and sisters. It's the old uh, way in the old English language of talking about our brethren being the family, our our family of brothers and sisters, men and women, boys and girls. He turns to us, and He addresses us. These, these are the things we hold. These are the things we are to do in light of the things that we hold. And so, this one sentence, verses 19 to 25, are one sentence, not as long as the long sentence we were looking at last week in Ephesians, but one of the longer sen- sentences in the Bible. And it is a a tremendous example, really, of holding together, putting succinctly the main points that have been taught to us in the preceding section. And it's held together by a series of three conjunctions that that are related to what we are to do in response to what we've learned. Let us draw near, let us hold fast, and let us consider each other. Those are the Those are the three main lessons that he wants us to learn in this first section. So, he's a message for all of us. Every one of us is included in that general phrase at the beginning, therefore, 
brothers and sisters. And he's talking about worship. He's talking about the relationship between what has been revealed and what we are to do in our lives. You can see that. That word, therefore, points us back. Everything that he has said so far has been a revelation from God. He's been telling us this right from chapter 1, verse 1. God, who at many times and in various ways spoke to our fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by one who is Son, that is, by the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's taking that, this thought of revelation, and he's saying, in light of what has been revealed and communicated to us by God and by the Holy Spirit, this is what we are to do in response to that. Now, the interesting thing is that he's addressing these particular people in this particular group of churches that are receiving this letter. And we've learned some things about these people. We've learned they're mostly from a Jewish background. They've been converted to Christianity. They've discovered that Christianity isn't half as exciting as Judaism is. It's had the effect of breaking family relationships. There's already been some persecution. We can, we can deduce that from the text as we've read it. Already they're missing some of the ceremony and, and the, the, uh, the dramatic nature of worship in the temple in Jerusalem. All that has been passé now that Christ has come, and, and they're missing that. So the, these are people who, who've been shaken, that is, shaken in their faith because of the persecution and the sufferings they've experienced, and they've been mistaken in some of their thinking about Christian things and Christian teaching. The author's been writing to correct them and to encourage them. And I just want to pause here right at this moment to say that that when he now addresses them as his brothers and sisters, he's teaching us that not every mistake and not every error is serious enough to break fellowship with people. Not every error, not every mistake is serious enough for us to break fellowship with people. We can remain in fellowship with our brothers and sisters whose knowledge is limited and whose faith is weak. Now, in, in unpacking, the, therefore, the practical implications of the teaching thus far, the, the, the writer, the author, begins with the holy worship due to God by His people. If you glance again at this little section, you'll find some things that are unfamiliar to you. You will find the language of holy places, and blood, and the curtain, and the priest, and the house of God. All of those words draw our attention to the public worship of the Old Testament church under the Old Covenant, the temple, the tabernacle, the holy places. There's the holy place, and there's the holy of holies in the house of God, which is the temple or the tabernacle. There were sacrifices. There was blood. There was a curtain that separated the holy place from the holy of holies, and there were priests who operated in the temple and the tabernacle. All of that has been superseded by Christian worship. And yet, and yet, 
there is a carryover from that Old Testament worship. There is, a, there are these elements, only these elements now relate to us from the perspective of having been fulfilled, now being completed. And we'll see how that works its way out as we unpack the text. So what he says at the beginning then is that Christian worship, which should be marked by a sense of confidence, boldness. He says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence or boldness to enter the holy places by the blood of Christ, we have boldness, he says, to enter into the holy places or the holiest. He's thinking principally of the temple and the tabernacle in which there were these various areas. You would proceed from one area into another, and then in the tabernacle itself or in the temple itself, there was the holy place, and then beyond it, screened by a great curtain, there was the holy of holies. The holy of holies was the place where God was most intimately present with His people. When they, when they were camping in the wilderness, and the author has repeatedly brought us back to the wilderness wanderings of the children of Israel. As they were wandering in the wilderness and they set up camp, every time they would set up the tabernacle in the middle of the camp and park themselves around it. And the glory cloud, the Shekinah glory of God, the brightness of God, would descend and rest upon that little bit of tent at the very end of the tabernacle called the Holy of Holies. It would fill the Holy of Holies with a brightness and the smoke of this fire that burned incessantly. For 40 years it burned, leading them through the desert, resting every night on the Holy of Holies until it etched itself into the corporate memory of the Jews, never to be erased. It was a reminder that God is present in the Holy of Holies. The curtain reminded them that they were barred from being in the intimate presence of God. Well, what the author has told us in this book so far is that that Holy of Holies represents a type or an analogy for heaven itself, which is God's ultimate place where He is pleased to intimately be present in a gracious and full manner to His people. The Holy of Holies represented that place, heaven itself. And what the writer is saying is this, that the Christian worshiper, the Christian worshiper can boldly go not into a church building or a temple or a cathedral, but can boldly go into the intimate presence of God Himself in heaven. That when we gather together, we gather to God, and we gather with those who are already in heaven, the angels and the archangels, and the spirits of just men and women who have already been made perfect before us. Our worship always transcends the space and time in which we gather and in which we meet. And we gather to God, and we come to God in heaven. We come and approach Him in the sanctuary, the true sanctuary, the holiest place of all. Theologically, this is how we would put it, we have access to God the Father 
in one spirit through Jesus Christ. Now you think of this. As we gather for worship, we don't, as it were, lounge on the outskirts. We go straight in to the living room of God Himself in heaven. You remember the parable of the prodigal son, one of the sons, the youngest son, gets fed up working for his dad, living at home. He asked to catch in what is going to come to him when his dad dies, and off he goes with the money to a far country, and he wastes the money, spoils it in, in riotous living, the old King James said. And after he's spent all his money, and he's come to an end of himself, and he sees the state of his life, he wants to go back home. And he thinks if he goes back home, that he'll be happy if he gets allowed to be simply a servant or even a slave in his father's household. And you know how the story goes. He comes back home, and while he's still at a distance, the father who's been looking out for him all these years that he's been gone, the father runs to him, embraces him, kisses him, brings him into the house, kills the fatted calf, calls for a party, invites all his friends, puts his best robe around him, and receives his son back as a full child into the family home again. And here's the reality, brothers and sisters, when we read what's being said here, is that when we come to see our state before God, and we come with our tail between our legs, knowing our weakness and our failure and our faults and our sins, we are received into heaven itself, into the very holy of holies, into the holiest place of all. How can that be possible? How can that be possible? The author goes on to tell us. Our confidence is based not on what we are or what we have or what we boast, but it is on the basis of the blood of Christ. Under the Old Covenant, there was the killing of all these animals every day in the temple. We still come on the basis of blood and sacrifice. But as one sacrifice that was made 2,000 years ago, this is the blood of Jesus that was shed on Mount Calvary on the altar of the cross for us and for our salvation. The author has talked about the obedience of Jesus as the second Adam coming into the world to obey where you and I have disobeyed. He has talked about how it is on the basis of His obedience we are clothed in His righteousness. And not only has He clothed us in His righteousness so that we are fit company for the presence of God, but He's dealt with our past. He's dealt with our sin by being the sacrifice. He's taken the punishment in our place. He's done all that for us. The blood of Jesus. The word blood is mentioned because it's emphasizing this is a sacrificial death. It's a life violently taken. It's a life that has been taken from Him in our place as our sacrifice once for all. And that death of Jesus has opened up a new and living way, a new way. Isaiah talked about a new creation. Jeremiah talked about a new covenant, a new way, a living way into the presence of God. 
There were people who tried to get into the presence of God in Moses' day, and they were not authorized to do so, and they were destroyed. We're able to go into the presence of God on this new and living way because we have been given life. We've been given the very life of God, eternal life. We come boldly. We come through the veil, he says. Remember I said the curtain barred the way. No one was allowed to go through the curtain. The high priest once a year was allowed through. And even then, there was a little string tied to, the, to his garments in case he got nuked in the presence of God. And you could pull him out without going in to get his body. The other priests, they could not go in there. But the author has said, apparently, we boldly go where the priests of Israel would never go. We boldly go into the holiest place of all through the curtain. What was it the curtain was hiding? It was hiding the presence of God from the people. It was hiding the glory of God, often represented as brilliant, uncreated light from the people. And then God sent a different tabernacle, not a tent, nor a building like the temple, but a person veiled in flesh, the Godhead, see, we sing at Christmas, hail incarnate deity, his flesh was the curtain that hid the glory of the Son of God. There was one occasion, you remember, at the transfiguration on the mountain when, when the glory inside could not be kept in any longer, and they saw His being transfigured before them. They saw the brightness of the splendor of the glory of God, as it were, metamorphizing on Him, metamorphosing in Him through His flesh, His whole being, transfused with this splendor. But that wasn't what people saw normally. They saw Jesus of Nazareth. They saw the carpenter's boy. And with a little giggle on the side, Moses, uh, Mary's son. Mary's son. That's all they saw. But on the cross, when his body was torn by the nails and by the spear, the curtain in the temple, we're told, was torn from top to bottom. Because the real curtain, that is, the flesh of the Son of God, had been torn on the cross. And we now go to God on the basis of His merit. We boldly go into the presence of God on the basis of all that Christ has done for us. And now we have a great high priest who is over the house of God. He's offered the final sacrifice. He's done all that's required. He intercedes for us. He pleads for us. He does what we need. And he's ours. He's ours. All his benefits are ours. So says the apostle, this is what's news. This is what you have. If you this morning know this this confidence to enter into God's presence, 
to know him as your father, to come close to him on the basis of what Jesus has done for you. On the basis of this, how should we live? Well, he says, on the basis of these gospel privileges, there are three gospel duties gathered around the words faith and hope and love. My uncle Willie was a Presbyterian minister, and I remember him once saying that he was going to speak to a a meeting somewhere, and I asked him what he was going to preach on. He said, oh, I have a bunch of lettuces that I'm going to take to the meeting. I had no idea what he was talking about, but he did tell me to look up a passage, and this is the passage. I have a bunch of lettuces for you today. First of all, let us draw near. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. So if we have this relationship with God, if we have this confidence with God, use it. When you gather for worship, use it. Let us draw near. Let us together draw near. It's corporate worship he has in view. Come to your Father in heaven and come boldly. Come to your Father in heaven and draw near to Him. Come with a sincere heart, a true heart. God requires truth in the inward part. Don't, be, don't hold back. Confess your sins to Him. Be honest to Him. We've already been honest to God in confessing our sins. I hope that you are confessing the ones you know about that everybody else doesn't know about as we come near to Him. But we can be honest to God as we draw near. Come in faith. Come as believers. In the full assurance of faith, he says, trusting only in the Lord Jesus Christ who has done the work to give you access into his presence. Come as those who've been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. That is, come as those who have been washed with pure water, the writer says. This is echoing the language of uh, Ezekiel, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean, and a new heart I will give to you, and I will put my spirit in you. Thomas Aquinas says, water, because it cleans, is indicative of the work of the Holy Spirit. So come as those who have been born again. The Bible says that we have the washing of the new birth and renewal in the Holy Spirit. Come as those who are born again. Come as those who have a new heart. How do I know if I've got a new heart? Do I have a heart for God through Jesus Christ? Do I have any love, any faith in God through Jesus Christ? But the words sprinkling and washing here have another sense. Because in the Old Testament, it was this sprinkling and this washing that was the preparation for a a priest, a high priest, to go in behind the curtain into the Holy of Holies. And what he's saying is, what was, what was the preserve of the high priest in this sense in the Old Covenant is now the privilege of every believer in the New Covenant. We have a priesthood today. We have priests who go in and out of the presence of God today. But who are they Well, you're a believer this morning. You're one. We are a holy priesthood. That's what we are. We are able to go to God and intercede with God and bring the blessing from God to those with whom we live and work.
Let us draw near with a true heart. Secondly, second, let us. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. These people were wavering. There was a temptation to waver in their faith. They were a bit... They were a bit squidgy, we might say, in terms of clarity of their thinking and in their own faith relationship with God. And yet, one of the marks of faith is that we confess it. We confess what we hope in to other people. People ask us, what do you believe? You tell them what you believe. But what is the big temptation nowadays? The big temptation nowadays, I guess it's always been the temptation, is to mute that in certain circles. I know that there's a right time and a wrong time to speak. I know that there are better moments than other moments in which you can speak. I know there's degrees of relationship that you sometimes have to have before you can say exactly what it is you believe. I take all of those caveats into consideration, but I would say that surely one of the marks of the believer is that they confess that they are a believer in Jesus Christ. That's fundamental, isn't it? If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. So, confession is important. And what do we confess? What do we believe? We believe the promises of God, the hope that's set before us, all the many great and precious promises that God has given to us. That's what we build our faith on. We we believe those things And the apostle, the writer, says, we are to do it without wavering, without swerving, without avoiding (laughs) to confess our faith, even when it's costly, and it will be costly. Some parts of the world, it's very costly for believers today. It may just cost you embarrassment, cost them their lives. The writer says, whatever it costs, confess your faith and do so with confidence because the one who promised is faithful. God's promises partake of God's nature. God's nature is to be unchanged and unchangeable. With him there is no variation or shadow caused by turning. The strength of Israel will not lie or repent, the Bible says. Let us hold fast. Don't give up. Don't retreat. Don't parachute out of this Christian life. Let's hold fast the confession of our hope, what we believe, what we cling to, what we trust in, what we proclaim to others. Hold on to it. Believe it. Persevere. And lastly, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. You know that word, consider how to stir one another up. It's actually a word that could be translated into English, provoke. It's usually the word we would use if we were talking about someone winding someone else up, pressing the buttons that gets them worked up. You know what I'm talking about, ladies? I mean, everybody? We all know the… I just pressed the button right there. 
they'll get somebody worked up, and you can write to me, and I'll take it and humbly apologize. But you, you, see, you see what I'm saying. That's the word that's used here. Only this time we're to do it not negatively, as I just did, and you'll have to work out in what direction I was meaning the negative, because it may not be the one you thought. Maybe I was talking about the men pressing your buttons, ladies. Or are you ladies pressing their buttons? You, 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 you can leave that to resolve that when you get home. But here, here, we are to stir one another up to love and good works. The, the, the word to consider here means literally have a mind for. In other words, have each other in your mind. Think about one another. Think about each other, the person you're worshiping with, the, the, pers- the people you know within the fellowship of God's church. Take responsibility for them. Don't think they're someone else's responsibility. They're your responsibility. We are each other's neighbor here. We are each other's brother, sister, family here. We have to take responsibility, and we have to be each other's keeper. And we're to provoke one another to love and to good works. Those things always go together. Love is the heart of it. Love your brother, sister. Love your neighbor. Love your enemy. Jesus doesn't make discipleship easy. He makes it hard. That's where it begins. But love manifests itself in good deeds. In other words, when he talks about love, remember, he's not thinking about a warm, fuzzy feeling you have. There are some people you have a warm, fuzzy feeling for because you like them, and you feel affection for them, and your affection for them may grow over the years. That's a good thing. But when the Bible says to love, it means you set your love upon them. You choose to love them. And how do you show your love? You show it by your deeds. So tomorrow when you go to work, love your neighbor. If he's your boss, how do I show good works towards my boss at work? Well, I work hard. I'm honest. How do I show my love towards the people I work with? Well, I try to affirm them in what they're doing. I try to encourage them, make, make working with me easier. The staff will be lining up this week to see how that's going to work out. Love and good deeds. That's the outworking of what he's saying here. What we come to worship, we approach God, and then what we do when we leave? Well, this is what we do. We encourage one another, he says, towards this. This is why we assemble together, he says. This is the reason why we have church. Church is church, because it brings us all together. All us little bits of the fire that are about to burn out during the week come together to be refreshed by being all together in the one place at one time. That's what the word to meet to assemble here means, corporately gathering together, thinking about our stated meetings like this where we all hear the Word of God all at once in one place, and the occasional meetings we have when we have friends over, or we go to our small groups, encouraging one another towards love 
and to good works. See, what the writer is talking about here is the church. He's talking about the church together worshiping. It's talking about the church together working and serving and loving and being. And we think the church. Cyprian, Augustine, others said there is no salvation outside the church. It's from the church that we are nurtured into life. It is in the church that we are, that we are discipled and we grow. And it's together with all the saints, the prickly and the smooth, the good, the bad, and the ugly, it's together with all the saints that we learn how high and deep and broad and wide is the love of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would please take your word today and, and you would help us, Lord, as we try to work it out, parse it out in our own lives during this week, that we would learn to produce those love and good works that you seek in us, we pray. In Jesus' strong name, amen.